This special episode of Embrace Everything, the world of Gustav Mahler, was produced in partnership with the New York Philharmonic. You can find a version of this episode with archival images to accompany the audio on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. The film Maestro, starring Bradley Cooper, opens on the young conductor Leonard Bernstein when he's just 25 years old. On November 13, 1943, he gets a call that would change his life. Bruno Walter, who was to have conducted this afternoon, is ill, and his place will be taken by the young American-born assistant conductor of the Philharmonic Symphony, Leonard Bernstein. The program includes the overture to... And in that moment, as he steps out on stage at Carnegie Hall, a star is born. Bernstein soon meets his future wife, Felicia Montalegra, and much of the film explores their complex relationship and life together. But towards the end of the movie, there's a pivotal scene that encapsulates what Bernstein's whole musical journey was all about. It happens in 1976, at the Ely Cathedral in England. And it's a six-minute reenactment of Bernstein conducting the finale of Mahler's Second Symphony. This musical event is a gutsy bit of filmmaking, to present such a relatively long piece of music in the context of a Hollywood movie. Bradley Cooper reportedly spent six years preparing his conducting skills to perform this scene. Leonard Bernstein was one of the musical giants of the 20th century, and Maestro is full of wonderful music, especially Bernstein's own compositions. But this scene with Mahler's music is the great climax of the film. And this is because, of all the hundreds of composers he conducted, Bernstein is considered to be more closely connected to Mahler than any of the others. In this special episode of Embrace Everything, we'll explore why this is, and how over a single decade, Leonard Bernstein ignited a global Mahler renaissance. In addition to his incredible musical talents and personal magnetism, Bernstein was able to inspire so many people with his enthusiasm for music because of a key tactical decision. In the 1950s, he harnessed the new technology of the time, television. When my dad took over the Philharmonic in 1957-58 season, the first thing he did was to uh, persuade CBS television to put them on TV. This is Jamie Bernstein, his daughter. And there had never been anything like that before. And there was a big premium back in those days on getting culture. After World War II, everybody in the U.S. was really into knowing stuff. Book of the Month Club, Record of the Month Club, and, you know, learn about classical music. It was a thing. And so it was uh, very much in keeping with that sensibility at the time to put young people's concerts on television because everybody wanted to know more about classical music and the parents wanted their kids to learn about classical music, too. The young people's concerts were a combination of music and lecture, a sort of show-and-tell with an orchestra. And beginning in 1958, they were televised. Bernstein went on to write, narrate, and conduct 47 televised young people's concerts over an 11-year period. 
Each episode was seen by 10 million people in the United States at the time. They were also eventually broadcast in 29 other countries. On February 7, 1960, for his Young People's Concert broadcast from Carnegie Hall, Bernstein decided to make his theme a little-known composer from the late 19th and early 20th century. The orchestra opened the concert with a short piece, and then Bernstein turned to the audience. I'll bet there isn't a person in this whole Carnegie Hall who knows what that music is. Or maybe some of you do because you've peeked at your programs and you know that today's concert is about a composer called Gustav Mahler. But who is this Mahler? Has any one of you ever heard of him? I'll bet not, or at least only very few of you. See, Mahler isn't one of those big popular names like Beethoven or Gershwin or Ravel, but he's sure famous among music lovers. In fact, we're playing an awful lot of Mahler these days right here at the Philharmonic. There's one of his pieces on every program for at least two months. And the reason is that this year is his 100th birthday. Imagine, he would have been 100 years old in July if he were still alive. At this point, the late 1950s, the world had sort of forgotten about Mahler. Throughout his life, his music was largely panned by critics, and later even banned by the Nazi regime because he was Jewish. But when Leonard Bernstein took over as music director of the New York Philharmonic, he insisted on a centenary festival for Mahler. And during the 1959-1960 season, the orchestra performed many of Mahler's works. These performances were conducted by Leonard Bernstein, Bruno Walter, and Dmitri Metropolis. Mahler himself had been the music director of the New York Philharmonic from 1909 to 1911. They gave many beautiful concerts with Mahler right here on this same stage of Carnegie Hall, And I'm very proud to stand here on the same stage with the same great orchestra because Mahler was one of the greatest conductors that ever lived. Of course, I never heard him conduct myself, but everyone who did hear him said he was simply marvelous. Because of his life as a superstar conductor, the only time Mahler had for composition was during the summers. Still, I admit it's a problem to be both a conductor and a composer. There never seems to be enough time and energy to be both things. I ought to know because I have the same problem myself. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so sympathetic to Mahler. I understand his problem. It's like being two different men locked up in the same body. One man is a conductor and the other is a composer. And they're both one fellow called Mahler or or Bernstein. During this concert, Bernstein performed parts of Mahler's Fourth Symphony for his young audience. But months before the broadcast, he tested it out on sort of a little focus group, his own children. It was the first Mahler symphony I was ever exposed to. Jamie Bernstein was nine years old. It was summer, and we were down by the pool. My brother and I were swimming around in the pool, and our dad had brought down the portable record player to poolside. You had to go down a whole bunch of little stone steps. It was kind of down a hill. And he'd brought the record player and his Bruno Walter recording of Mahler 4 and his score. And so he sat down in his bathing suit on the, you know, the, the, the chaise longue with his score and his cigarettes, of course. And he was listening to the recording and following along in the score. It was part of his studying. And while all that was happening, my brother and I are splashing around in the pool. So we wound up getting this sort of play-by-play 
explanation of the music as it was going along. Leonard Bernstein was the first American-born music director of the New York Philharmonic, and also its first native English speaker. It wasn't just his musical insights, but also the way he spoke to the audience that had a huge impact in these young people's concerts. And everybody watched. Back in those days, every household had one screen that they all watched together in the living room. The entire family, multiple generations, everybody had to decide, however they did it, what they were going to watch together. And when I talk to young people about the young people's concerts, at this point I always say, so, how many screens do you have in your house? Oh, the hubbub that starts up in the room where I'm telling them to do this, everybody gets all excited. I have eight, I have 11, you know. And then I say, well, imagine what it was like to have that one screen in the house. And because there was only the one screen, it meant that whatever was on TV was making a gigantic impact on everybody, young and old alike. And that is one of the biggest reasons why the Young People's Concerts were such a big deal. During the same February in 1960 that he did his Young People's Concert about Mahler, Bernstein had another Mahler milestone, this time mainly for grown-ups. He made his first recording of a Mahler symphony with the New York Philharmonic, the fourth with soprano Rary Grist. And during the rest of the 1960s, Leonard Bernstein would record almost all of the Mahler symphonies with the New York Philharmonic. In 1961, it was Mahler III. In 1963, they recorded Mahler II and Mahler V. In 1965, Mahler VII and Mahler IX. In 1966, Mahler won. And in 1967, they recorded Mahler VI. The only one but Bernstein recorded this one with the London Symphony Orchestra in 1966. For those performances of the Eighth in England, Bernstein's wife Felicia was there. Oh, I think she loved Mahler. Jamie Bernstein. And I remember sitting with her at Mahler Eighth. And we were just both of us sobbing at the end. It was a very strong combo. Bernstein and Mahler, very strong combo. And if you were lucky enough to catch them doing their thing together, boy, it was, it was a lot. Especially Mahler, too, because it's so enormous and it's so overwhelming just in its sheer construction. 
second symphony was the first Mahler symphony Leonard Bernstein conducted, and for over a decade, it was the only Mahler symphony he performed. From the beginning, Bernstein clearly felt a special connection with Mahler. For an early Boston performance in 1948, one reviewer wrote, It is difficult to write calmly and impossible to write adequately about what took place at Symphony Hall yesterday afternoon. Take my word for it. No such excitement has been seen in Symphony Hall in many a year. His whole approach to conducting was to try and imagine being the composer, composing those notes and choosing those notes. And because he was a composer, he could do that. He could put himself in the mind of the composer and imagine them choosing those very notes. And that enabled him to really uh, evoke the composer's intentions. And sometimes with Mahler, it was like he was channeling the guy. It was almost spooky. Bernstein said he identified with every composer he conducted. But when he performed Mahler, he felt like he had personally composed Mahler's music himself. And the two men did share an amazing number of similarities. Both had difficult relationships with their fathers. Both came from distinctly unmusical families. Mahler's father ran a tavern and distillery. Bernstein's father ran a hair and beauty supply company. As musicians, they each presided over a decade-long golden era at the institutions they led. Mahler at the Vienna Court Opera and Bernstein at the New York Philharmonic. Both were music directors of the New York Philharmonic. They were conductors and composers, equally skilled in both areas. They loved the popular music of their time and used it in their own compositions to dazzling effect. They didn't see musical borders, One kind of music wasn't better than another. They embraced all of it lovingly and with delight. They didn't have religious borders either, incorporating ideas about faith from many sources, although both men were Jewish. Mahler wrote a resurrection symphony, Bernstein wrote a mass. And many of the complex life themes upon which Mahler meditated were familiar to Bernstein. My father had this terrible dread about our capacity to destroy ourselves completely. And his dread never gets any less justified as we go along. And Mahler had that too. And you can really hear that in his symphonies, in many of them. And, and my father really picked up on that. Bernstein conducted a televised broadcast of Mahler's Second Symphony with the New York Philharmonic on November 24, 1963. It was the first time an entire Mahler symphony had been broadcast on television and it was presented just two days after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It expressed the grief and anger felt by a suffering nation. And almost five years later, on another deeply tragic occasion, Bernstein would conduct the Adagetto from Mahler's Fifth Symphony at the funeral of Robert Kennedy. While Mahler's music does express overwhelming sadness and anger, on the other hand, it can also be so uplifting.
I think they both had that same sense that by writing beautiful, emotional music, they could raise everyone, every listener, up to that higher level of discourse where everyone got along and everyone was literally and figuratively in harmony. I don't know what Mahler's politics were at all, but I know for, in my father's case, you know, he'd spent his entire life doing everything that he could to try and make the world a better place. And he did it constantly through his music making, both as a performer and as a composer. It was the same sense of let, let's all go to this higher plane. And by experiencing the sharing of that higher plane, that will help us all to go back down to the lower plane and get along and, and figure things out. That was his idealism. The musical lives and legacies of Bernstein and Mahler became even more intertwined in 1967, when Columbia Records released the first-ever box set of all the Mahler symphonies, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. Here's Gabe Smith, archivist for the New York Philharmonic. It's such a physical representation of this moment, how big it is, how heavy it is. Fourteen records in a leather-bound case. There were the symphonies, of course, but the set also had some special items along with the music. There was an interview with Anna Mahler, Mahler's only surviving daughter. Among other things, she described how their family lunches had to be eaten in absolute silence because Mahler was meditating on very serious subjects. When he suddenly took notice of me, the complete change, and uh, as if it were a burst of warmth, that I remember so well. It didn't happen often because he didn't have time. But, but suddenly he, he took notice of me. And, and the change in the face, these are my memories. The box set also contained a two-hour radio program called I Remember Mahler, in which William Mollock interviewed musicians who had worked with Mahler, talking about what he was like. He treated his musicians like a lion tamer his animals. He was the best loved and the best hated man in Vienna in musical circles. And here we see one of the great differences between Bernstein and Mahler as conductors. Bernstein's orchestras adored him for his enthusiasm and affection. Mahler's orchestras were terrified of his demanding perfectionism and sardonic comments. Finally, the box set of recordings contained an article written by Leonard Bernstein, originally published in High Fidelity magazine entitled, Mahler, His Time Has Come. In the article, Bernstein says that Mahler foretold all the horrific conflicts we would see in the 20th century, and that his music showered a rain of beauty on this world that has not been equaled since. It's a great read if you think about like what's going on in the world in the late 60s. Of course, that's what Bernstein did. Gabe Smith. He was always connecting things to the time, either that they were in, that's what he's doing with Mahler, or the time that he is in. Making these connections that are broader than music was his bread and butter. 
You can see Bernstein making these connections in the actual scores he conducted from. His entire collection of scores was donated to the New York Philharmonic Archives after his death. The notes in the margins, like a lot of what goes into this essay, this box set essay, that's the high fidelity essay, that's all worked out in the scores. An idea could come out of one fermata, one pause, one phrase structure. Like you see those thoughts being worked out as he's looking at the music. There's also one very special score in the New York Philharmonic collection, Mahler's First Symphony. And that's one of the ones that actually didn't originate with the Philharmonic that originated with Mahler. Like Bernstein, Mahler is marking, making changes every time he's performing something. I mean, that's the sense you get. Mahler wasn't the only one who used this score. Bruno Walter actually has marked this particular Mahler score as well, on top of Mahler. And Bernstein did it too. You know, it says LB, it says BW, and then it's got Mahler's own stamp on it. So that's how we know those three. By 1968, due to the success of the box set from Columbia Records, Mahler was now ahead of Beethoven on the U.S. classical record charts, according to Billboard magazine. And Bernstein went on to win two Grammy Awards for his recording of Mahler's Eighth Symphony. And then, in 1969, at the height of his achievements with the orchestra, Bernstein announced he was stepping down as music director of the New York Philharmonic, wrapping up an incredible decade of Mahler. Time magazine said that no other person had done more to popularize Mahler's music than Leonard Bernstein. His final concert with the New York Philharmonic? Mahler's Third Symphony. After the performance, there were speeches, including these comments by the chairman of the Philharmonic Board at the time, Amyas Ames. This concert marks the 10th year of Leonard Bernstein's leadership. Tonight he conducted his 939th concert, a record no other music director has approached. We are celebrating the occasion by appointing him Laureate Conductor of the New York Philharmonic. Laureate Conductor was a title that the New York Philharmonic had never bestowed upon anyone else. The board also wanted to present Bernstein with an unusual special gift, not exactly a gold watch. So we have given him a Chris Craft motorboat. <laughs> For he and his family love to water ski and to speed over water. The boat is called the Laureate, and we know it will be bathed in salt spray because we know Bernstein. But that wasn't the end of Bernstein or Mahler. After his music directorship with the New York Philharmonic ended, Bernstein would continue to fly the Mahler flag proudly and his Mahler concerts around the world were events never to be missed. He famously put a huge sticker on his score of Mahler 6 that said, Mahler Grooves, and he would record another complete cycle of Mahler symphonies, although this time with several orchestras. Gabe Smith. This is the next phase of his career. This is him, you know, in these privileged guest conductor positions around the world. Bernstein's Deutsche Grammophon Mahler cycle in the 1980s would include the New York Philharmonic, 
the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam, and the Vienna Philharmonic. And he would also record a complete Mahler symphony cycle on video as well. After all this, did Mahler's music have an impact on Bernstein's own compositions? Jamie Bernstein. I hear lots of Mahler in uh, my father's music. Uh, the Cotter Symphony has so much Mahler in it because it has that same, you know, sense of calamity uh, about the human race. And so I think there's a lot of Mahler emotionally, if not musically. But then I've always thought that Make Our Garden Grow, the finale of Candide, is very Mahlerian. And so it tickled me that Bradley Cooper decided to include the finale of Candide and the finale of Mahler too in his film, because I've always thought that, that those two finales had so much in common. Both works end with humanity looking upwards and reaching magnificently towards a better world for everyone. Gustav Mahler is buried in Vienna. Leonard Bernstein is buried in Brooklyn. And Bernstein was buried with one of Mahler's scores in his coffin, the Fifth Symphony. You've been listening to a special episode of Embrace Everything, the world of Gustav Mahler. I'm your host, Aaron Cohen. I also wrote and produced the program. Our editors are Jenny Lawton and Marilyn McCoy. The audio was mixed by Rick Kwan. Interviews were recorded by Bill Sigmund at Digital Island Studios. Video editing and production by Bridget McCormick. Archival audio and images were supplied by Gabe Smith and Meredith Self. A very special thank you to Jamie Bernstein. Thanks also to Jennifer Barnett, Lou Smoley, Christine Sun, Catherine Ronaldo, Caroline Heaney, and Mallory McFarland. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to check out other episodes of our podcast, Embrace Everything, the world of Gustav Mahler. We go in-depth on the Mahler symphonies with a huge cast of musicians and experts, including members of the New York Philharmonic and other great orchestras from around the world. All the details of the series can be found on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. And if you'd like to hear a great Mahler performance, be sure to check out the New York Philharmonic season at David Geffen Hall in New York. Until next time, I'm Aaron Cohen.